would take a Bible, please, and turn to Micah chapter 2. Micah 2, it's on page 776 in your pew Bible. Fake Christianity is the title of the sermon today. I'm going to explain uh, more what I mean by that in a minute. But often in the scriptures, we receive warning passages, uh, passages that are specifically meant to listen up. Here's a warning that you need to listen to, the people of God. This is one such warning. Sometimes the warning is for the nations. Jonah is a, is a warning book for the nations, for the non-Christians. But very often, the warning is for us, and that is what Micah 2 is today. So if you would follow along, I'm going to read the whole chapter of Micah, uh, Micah chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. And that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest. Because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I'll preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, it will stand forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you give us ears to hear the warning from your word today? Lord, that we would use this warning as a time to examine our hearts, examine our faithfulness to you, examine ourselves of our trust and hope that can only be found in you alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 1969, the Gulf Coast region was bracing for Hurricane Camille. Uh, Hurricane Camille was kind of a Katrina-like hurricane, for those of you who may not have been alive at that time. Bracing for this catastrophic event that was going to happen. It was going to hit the Gulf Coast region, and it would hit a little small town in, in Mississippi, and John Kinzer corrected me of the pronunciation of this city after the first service, Pass Christian, Mississippi. That's where the worst of the storm was going to hit. And fortunately, most of the people had evacuated this area, knowing that it, it was going to be so bad. They had heeded the warning, if you will, but not everyone. 
There was a hurricane party that night. Seems odd to call it such. A hurricane party at the posh Richelieu apartment complex in past Christiane, Mississippi. And so police officer chief Jerry Peralta rolls up on this apartment complex a few hours before the hurricane was to make landfall to finally say one more time, y'all got to get out of here. <laughs> the hurricane's coming. You need to evacuate like everyone else has done. Please leave. And so one guy from a balcony up above says, we ain't going anywhere. We're staying right here. You know, this is my apartment complex. You know, if you want me out of here, you're going to have to arrest me. There's no point in arresting anyone at that point. Where are you going to take them? Like, you've got to get out of there because of the hurricane that's coming. So they don't listen. At 10.15 that night, Hurricane Camille makes landfall with winds in excess of 205 miles an hour. Raindrops hitting against this apartment complex almost like bullets. Waves cresting in on the surf at 22 to 28 feet high. There was absolutely nothing left of the apartment complex other than its foundation. Every single person at that particular hurricane party that night died except for one, <coughs> a small little five-year-old child who was found the following day clinging to a mattress. They didn't listen. They didn't listen to the warning. You got to leave. There's danger coming. You're going to die. There, there's no way that you can withstand this. The, the, the force of the winds and, and this storm, it's you, you must leave. Listen, Judge Peralta said to these people. But they didn't. And it cost them their life. First Perez, this is a warning passage today. This is one of the passages of Scripture that always we listen to God's Word, but listen, listen to what is being said. It's not talking to everybody out there, though the word and message could be for them. It's talking to us. It's talking to the church people. The warning is for you and for me. God often does this in the scriptures. Sometimes the warning is for the nations, and sometimes it's specifically for the churched people. The Sermon on the Mount is one such warning. Hebrews chapter 6 is a warning to God's people. Let us heed this today. <coughs> Micah begins the book in chapter 1 by saying, Hear you peoples, listen to me. You, you ever had your kids not listen to you before? That happens all the time. Happened this morning at our house. And you want to say, listen to me, pay attention, listen to what I'm saying. It's as if Micah starts his book that, that way. Listen, he grabs her faith, listen, listen to the word of the Lord. Micah saw a lot in his ministry in the southern kingdom. He ministered for 40 years, and, and, and actually, Adley, he, he preached pretty much the same sermon for 40 years, and they continued to not listen. <coughs> Judgment's coming because of your opulence Everything looks great. There's wealth and prosperity in the land. Everyone's content and happy. But it's not good because they have substituted true worship and they brought in Baal and other pagan idols and, and started to intermingle the worship with the worship of Yahweh. As we're going to see in a minute, they mistreat people. They don't love their neighbor as God had called them to. Forty years of the same sermon. They don't listen on the outside, everything looks fine, but on the inside, there's no love and affection for God. <coughs> God is looking at his people in much the same way he wants to address us. Listen and pay close attention. God's not going to tolerate sinfulness. He's not going to tolerate people that honor him with their lips, yet their heart is far from them. God issues warnings to us throughout the Bible. And because of that, we must examine ourselves of our faith 
of our love for God and of our obedience to him. Fake Christianity. I think this chapter in Micah talks about it in three ways. Number one, fake Christians do not follow God. They're not interested in his word. Look at verses one through five. Micah moves from the generalities in chapter one to the specifics of chapter two. He's going to tell them specifically what they're doing wrong and their sin that they've committed. The wickedness described is particularly done by the powerful, wealthy people in Israel. They're oppressing the the low-income, poor people, okay? We have all the stuff. Let's get more and more. We're greedy. How are we going to get it? Let's go take it from the people that don't have a lot so that we'll get richer. To the wealthy man, this was just being business savvy. I'm a good businessman. I know how to get what I want. But God's saying, no, it's not. You're oppressing people. What you're doing is evil in my sight. This is a justice issue. The behavior was evil from the wealthy. It says they work evil on their beds in verse 1. In other words, they, they stay up really late at night and they plan their, their plan of attack. Okay? And as soon as the sun comes up in the morning, they go and do it. Okay? It's a sinister plot to get more and more and more and to impre- oppress more and more. Greed is driving them. They're never satisfied. It's an insatiable appetite. I need more. I need bigger. I need better. They covet something and they take it. Implied here, I think, it's not only do they do that, but they're good at it. They're really good at evil, I think is what Micah is saying. And they go and they take. But God responds to that oppression in verse 3. He says, you plot evil against your neighbor, I'm plotting disaster against you. So because of your transgression, you're not going to get away with this. Just as you've done evil to your neighbor, I'm going to do what you perceive to be evil to you. He's going to send a nation that's going to destroy them and take them into exile. They plot evil, God plots disaster. We see in verses 4 and 5 that not only the people that committed the sins are are in trouble of judgment, everybody is going to receive the, the judgment that's coming, even those who are on the receiving end of this oppression. Verse 5 looks to life beyond the destruction. In the book, uh, in Joshua, the people go into the promised land, and when they do, Joshua distributes the promised land out to the 12 tribes, okay? So that's where they are in the promised land. Exile, this, this nation is going to come destroy them, and they're going to be scattered, scattered about. But one day, it says in verse 5, they're going to come back to this promised land, and then the, the, the land is going to be distributed out to the tribes once again, except for these wealthy, oppressive people. They have no future with God. Everyone else is going to get their land back. Everyone else is going to be gathered back together except for these. They have no future with God. They don't get the land. They will be banned from God's presence and from his grace forever. Are you a fake Christian? Are you just faking it? Could be said of you what God's, what Christ says in, in Matthew chapter 23... Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Is that you? You look great. If there was ever a church that looked great on the outside, it's our church. We look fantastic. Makeup's done very well this morning. Hair's done great. The tie matches the suit. Everything outwardly 
looks so put together and nice. But what about inside? Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. I don't know what your heart looks like. You look great, but I don't know what your heart looks like. What does it say? If you examine yourself, we say we love God, we come to church, we've been baptized, but how do you treat other people? You're here today, but tomorrow you're going to go to work and you're going to be an awful boss. You're going to speak harshly to people. You're not going to speak kindly. How do you treat others? We say we love God, but we're so overcome with greed that we're never satisfied with what we have. There's no contentment. We say we love Jesus, but we literally covet everything that everyone else has. You want everyone else's life. You want their house. You want their wardrobe. You want their marriage. You're never satisfied. You just want what everyone else has. On the outside, we look great. We go to a great church. Our kids are involved in the programs. We're officers in the church. We help out with the children's ministry. But we're far from God because we're faking it. Our heart really doesn't love God. We don't really have an affection for him. Why are you here today? Why did you get up this morning and get all put together and come? You know, there's not too many places left in the United States like Macon, Georgia. I say that to our compliment, not to our criticism. Where it's still socially acceptable to go to church. Or maybe say it a different way, it's, it's still socially unacceptable to not go to church. That's a general term, of course. It may not everyone here. But it's, it's advantageous to you to come to church, to be a Christian, to identify with a local body. It's advantageous to your business. It's advantageous to your political campaign. It's advantageous maybe to your social standing here. Hey, I'm involved in a church. I'm, I'm, I'm good people because I go to church. That's not going to get us to heaven, and it's not going to satisfy the wrath of God. Are you here because you love your Savior, because you're eager to worship Him? You find joy in fellowshipping with other believers? God takes delight in that. Or are you here because you're just a faker? You don't really love him. Kevin DeYoung says that God isn't looking for people who look nice on Sunday. He's not looking for people with a spotless past. He's not looking for the best and the brightest. He's not looking for the strong and the significant. He's not looking for winners. He's looking for worshipers. He's looking for people that love him and are content and hopeful in him. So the first part Fake Christianity doesn't really love his word. It loves its own way. Secondly, fake Christianity does not fear God, does not heed the warning or fear the consequences. The problem in Israel is not that no one is worshiping. It's not that everybody quit going to church. No, everybody's still going to church. The, the, the church is full of people, believe me, at this time. There's no shortage of religion. It's not making a difference in anybody's life. It's... The worship is not according to God's word, and by the way, they're mistreating everyone. It's not making a difference. They're incorporating other religious practices into their worship. There's sexual immorality in worship. There's cult prostitution in worship. All these things from the outside have been kind of melded together in the worship of Yahweh. Hey, today we'll worship Yahweh, but if things don't go well, we'll worship Baal too. We'll We'll cover all of our bases. They show no fear in what Micah has to say. No fear in the word of the Lord to them. The wealthy businessman didn't mind a preacher as long as the preacher told him what he wanted to hear. Preacher, just 
Stay on task. Talk about prayer and a personal relationship with God, but don't meddle into the marketplace issues. Don't tell me I might not be living right or running my business the way that I ought to. Just talk about the spiritual things. Stay in your lane, preacher, and I'll take care of the other stuff. The false preachers and the false prophets of that day are also speaking against Micah. He's lost his mind. He's not saying what's correct. But Micah was. This was not Micah's idea. It wasn't even his synthesis of what God had told him. This was the word of the Lord that came to Micah, and he spoke it to God's people. One should not preach of such things, they say to him. Talk about the spiritual stuff and leave everything else to us. And so they reject Micah. They don't want to listen to him, thereby removing the word of the Lord from their presence altogether. They are not upright. In fact, God says in verse 8, they have become like my enemies. His own people have become like his enemies. They don't seek justice. They treat others like enemies. They take things from people as if it's wartime, he says. There's no generosity. There's heartlessness. I think I've told, excuse me, I think I've told y'all before, I have an older brother, Chris, uh, who's four years older than me, and a younger sister, Kelly, who's three years younger than me. Uh, and what we enjoy doing, we don't get together often, but when we do, we like to sit around and tell stories about mom and dad, right? And wasn't it hilarious when mom did this and when dad did that? Uh, and so we do that. And one of my favorite stories to hear told is when my brother tells the story of when he came home one night uh, in high school and he was two hours late on, from curfew. He had to be home at 11, and he came home about 1 a.m., now, Chris had a huge advantage that the rest of us did not have. Uh, we had, I grew up in a four-bedroom home in Nashville, and Mom and Dad are upstairs, and Kelly and I are upstairs on the other end of the house, and Chris was downstairs. So he could just come in downstairs and go to his room, and no one's the wiser. Okay? He really had it easy. He had far better than I did. Anyway, um, so that night, he pulls into the driveway two hours late, and the house is pitch dark, and he's like... Yes, mom and dad are asleep. I'm going to sneak in like I always do, and everything's going to be fine. So what he did, what he always did, he walked in the door from the deck, and you come in from the deck, and you walk through our living room, and you turn right and go through the kitchen, down the hall into Chris's room. So he walks in the, li in the living room and sets one foot into the kitchen, and this is what he hears. This better be good. My mom was sitting at the kitchen table, waiting on him, knowing that he was two hours late from curfew. Now, Many of you don't know my mother, but you, you didn't cross mom. You didn't cross mom. We, we're afraid of mom's discipline. Far more afraid of mom than dad. Not that dad was a pushover, but mom delivered. If you do this, this is going to happen, and you can take that to the bank. It was going to happen. Mom was harder on us. We loved her, but she was harder on us, and we feared her discipline because we knew she was going to do exactly what she said she was going to do. And we were afraid. You know, as parents, it's okay for your children to fear your discipline. It's not why you do it. It's you do it because you love them. You've heard this illustration used many times in sermons. We parent our children not in spite of our love, but because we love them. We want them to be good citizens. We want them to be good church members. We want them to be kind and to follow God's law, all of those things. We do it just because we love them. First Pres, this is one of the reasons you have pastors. We're not your parents, no, we don't parent you, but often God, you, God, your parent, your heavenly father, uses your pastors to discipline you, to correct you, to rebuke you, perhaps, from the pulpit. 
Often we think about church discipline and we think, oh no, something really bad has happened and the session's got to get involved. Well, this is one of the most basic forms of church discipline. It's to correct you, to rebuke you for a sin, to encourage you, to train you somehow. It is the Lord loving you in the context of his church, calling you to repent, calling you to seek the Lord and examine your heart. You see what's happened to Israel? They're not worshiping God the way that he commanded them to. That has filtered down to the way that they treat each other. And now there is complete dysfunction in all of Israel and judgment's coming because of it. They've continued to violate the covenant with Moses. And God says, that's enough. I'm not going to put up with it any longer. I've been patient with you. I've been long-suffering. And now judgment is coming because you've never repented of your sins. You don't love one another. You just want to get and get and get. You don't want to give. You're corrupt. You don't want preachers that tell you the word of the Lord. You want preachers to tickle your ears and tell you exactly what you want to hear. You, don't, you can't imagine that God would be upset with you because you've turned God into your own image. He looks exactly like you want him to, not as he really is. The result of all that is that they now have no future with God. Lastly, verses 12 and 13. We come up to verse 12 and eh, not a whole lot to be happy about. <laughs> In fact, if, if we get into chapter 3, it kind of gets even worse. But we get two verses that are sort of a parenthesis of hope here. That we get some good news in the midst of judgment. Often in the minor prophets, if you, or if you read the major or minor prophets, there's a cycle that, that will help you to understand what's going on. It's a cycle of God gives his judgment, he promises mercy, and then there's restoration. There, that cycle happens three times in the book of Micah. Judgment, really bad stuff is coming, but here's mercy, repent, and in the end you're going to be restored, those who are his. The final two verses give us this hope. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold. Judgment will come and they will be scattered, all of them. The, the, the Christians and the non-Christians, the wealthy landowners, that true and lasting judgment is going to come, and those who are truly the sheep and those that are God's. They're going to be scattered, scattered but one day God says, I'm going to gather you back in. I'm going to bring you back to the land I'm going to protect and provide for you once again. God promises this remnant, this, this group that he's going to bring back together into love. A shepherd is going to do this. A shepherd is a common image that the Bible uses. You know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He provides for me, he protects me, he loves me. I find comfort in him. Jesus says of himself in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. He is the shepherd. He is a good leader. He does not oppress. He gathers and protects and loves. So the chapter ends with this idea of salvation. God will properly shepherd his people in a way that the other leaders had not. Now, there's a, there's a historical setting of this, of course. There's a prophecy that finds its temporal fulfillment in the coming back from exile. But these verses are also casting our eye way past that. And verse 13 tells us. It says, this, the picture that's given in verse 13 is of a warrior, of someone overthrowing enemies. But what's interesting, and I want, I want to read what one commentator says on this verse. 
the picture of verse 13 is not of a liberator who comes from the outside to release those who are within. The movement of the liberator and the liberated in this verse are come from within, and then they together move out. Not only is freedom provided for them by another, but it is by one who has been with them, who's identified with them, who has shared in their lot. Do you see this? He opens the breach, goes up before them. This liberator is inside captivity with them. And then he breaks through the gate and leads them on at their head. What a picture of Jesus Christ for us today. We are in, in dead in our trespasses and sins. We are in, in this thing that we made for ourselves. He came in it, and we break out with it. This is the ministry of Christ for us. Liberating us. Identifying with us. And loving us. He opens the way. The shepherd king and what he has done for us. For those who never turn to Christ, who never really love him and have affection for him, they will not be a part of this group. That's the warning. That's the warning for Israel and it's the warning for us. This covetousness, covetousness and greed and hatred towards your brother, is that more what describes you or is it a follower and lover of God? The book of Amos really hits, home, hits this idea home well. If you would, turn, if you have a pew Bible, page 768. I want to read a brief portion of Amos, and we'll close with this. Amos is from the south, and he's been called by God to go preach to the north. Okay, so Micah, at the same time, is ministering to the southern kingdom. Amos ministering to the northern kingdom. And Amos is basically saying the same thing Micah has said. You're, not, you're oppressing people, social injustice, you're doing bad stuff, and God's going to bring judgment. And basically, the, the, the people of the northern kingdom have said, whatever. I don't care what you have to say, uh, prophet of God. We're not listening to your message. And so now this is Amos's, God through Amos's response uh, to that. Amos chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. If a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? In the prophets, the day of the Lord is talked about in two ways. Sometimes it's positive, God's coming to bring, to gather those who love him. And sometimes it's negative, bad judgment, okay? The judgment coming because of sin. That's the way Amos is talking about it. He's saying, why are y'all excited about the Lord returning? That's going to be awful for you because you've never repented of your sins. You don't love him. That's only bad can come from that. They're indifferent. So now he goes on in verse 21. God speaking, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. If there were ever some verses in the Bible that ought to make us shudder, it is these. Do you see what the context is? They're, they're doing the sacrifices that God told them to do. They're offering the grain and peace offerings, exactly what God told them to do. They're, they're making music and melody and praise to God, exactly what they're supposed to do. And what does God say about it? 
He says, I hate it. I hate what you do. I don't accept it. I don't listen. I will not receive it. He's not talking about them. He's talking about us. I hate your worship because you don't worship me with your heart. You think because outwardly you look fantastic, everything's fine. No, 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 no. You can fake other people and you can fake your pastor, but you can't fake God. He knows. He knows whether you love him in spirit and truth. He knows if you've truly given yourself to him and you have hope in him alone. Could it be said of us, I know you're here every Sunday, but I hate what you do because you don't love me with your heart. You're here for you. You're here for to be seen. You're here so other people will think great of you, not because you really love me and you hope in me and you know what I can do for you. I liberate you. I've set you free. I've done these things for you. And now what I'm asking of you is to love me and to love your neighbor. Go forth and do this. And be delighted in your Savior. And when we do come into his presence in spirit and truth and in repentance, he takes joy in our worship. He doesn't hate it. He loves it. He finds a delight in it when we come to him in the manner in which he has told us to. This is a warning passage. It's not meant to scare you, although a little bit of fear and trepidation is just fine. As you spend today examining yourself, Lord, do I love you? Examine your heart. It's not just as simple as scaring. If it was just about scaring people to go into the kingdom of God, well, that's all we do up here is just try to scare you every Sunday. But that's not what it's about. It's about loving him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and our neighbor as ourself. This great Savior who has come within to lead us out, to be with him forever. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, that we would heed this warning today, that we would trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for how he has loved us and set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.